please turn back to Genesis chapter 18. And uh, one of the great blessings of preaching away is that I get to preach on favourite passages. And this is a, a favourite of mine that, uh, that because it used to seem totally bizarre to me. The central section sounds like Abraham's in the market haggling with God. and I couldn't see the point of it. But the Lord makes clear that this is of the utmost importance. Have a look at uh, uh, chapter 18, verses 17 to 19. Um, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Uh, in other words, what is about to happen will be an important lesson for Abraham to teach his as yet unborn kids and the nations that would come from them. Um, lessons about justice and the character of God. So when I was preaching through the life of Abraham five years ago, I knew that I couldn't skip it, but it was a huge puzzle and it took me a lot of work, uh, but it really blessed me. And as I can't keep preaching on it, on it in my own church, uh, it's been like returning to an old friend this week after a five-year absence. Um, if you're into history and uh, maps and so on, we're, we're around 2000 years BC. Abraham is at Mamre, just northeast of modern-day Hebron. Uh, on the western ridge above the, what is now the Dead Sea. So if you have a map in the back of your Bible and you want to check it out, that's what you'll see. Abraham's high up on this ridge and uh, the cities of the plain used to be down there below him. Um, Sodom and, and the others in the valley below, uh, probably on land that's now being flooded by the Dead Sea. Uh, for me, the first step in understanding this passage was realising that chapters 18 and 19 should be read together, as it all happens in one incident, less than 18 hours. Um, so uh, chapters uh, uh, 19 uh, verses 27 to 29 refers back to that central section and highlights it. So, so, um, Abraham went back to where he was standing before the Lord's. Uh, but there are also lots of parallels between the two chapters. Abraham and Lot are being compared. Lots of similar things happen to the two men. But where there are differences, Abraham looks better every time. So, um, so let's have a look at this comparison then. Have a think about it. At the beginning of both chapters, the two men are sitting at the entrance to their home. Uh, both, uh, when they see visitors approaching, bow down and insist on inviting these visitors to their home, which is eventually accepted. Both men cook a meal for their guests, but Abraham's is particularly lavish. Uh, we read five measures, that's five seers of flour. And I looked this up, what, how big is a seer? So he's cooking a meal with 36 pounds of flour. Okay, I looked up Jamie Oliver's basic bread recipe, and uh, this would end up making uh, more than 16 large loaves of bread. And Abraham's also cooking an entire calf, and he's brought milk and curd, so it's a bit like cottage cheese. So imagine your largest ever Christmas turkey. Uh, and uh, how much bigger? Is, uh, is a calf than that. Think how many people that turkey fed. And, and this is something much bigger. 
and uh, all this meat, all this bread, all this cheese and milk. This is a huge feast, isn't it? I mean, what kind of recipe calls for all of that? Frankie and Benny's certainly don't have, serve cheeseburgers this size, do they? It's a, a huge feast. What can explain it? Well, Abraham knows who this is. He's met the, Ab the angel of the Lord several times before. In chapter 15, he's introduced as the word of the Lord, the one who reveals God, but is also himself called the Lord and is worshipped by Abraham. Of course, if, if you've read John chapter 1, you know exactly who this is. The word of God, who was there at the beginning, who is himself God and makes the Father known. We know him as Jesus, don't we? Uh, it's like Abraham has walked into the tent and realised, I just invited God for lunch. The one on whom all my hopes depend, in whose hands is my very life. What can I possibly cook him that's worthy of him? I said, I'll just have to cook him everything. And so his man versus food menu suddenly makes sense. Both men have wives that don't trust what God tells them. Sarah gets rebuked for it. Lot's, Lot's wife longs for Sodom and so shares in its fate. Both men intercede on behalf of someone else, attempting to save them. Abraham interceded with the Lord on behalf of Sodom and the other towns. And, uh, and he wins many concessions because he's valued by the Lord's. Lot intercedes with the men of Sodom on behalf of the angels. Not that they needed his help, thank you very much. Uh, but not only does he win no concessions from the men of Sodom, even when appallingly he offers his own daughters to try and save them, he even needs to be rescued from them because Lot is not valued by the people of Sodom at all. And, uh, they, uh, and instead... Uh, the angels have to save him from their hands. Even his... ...won't listen to him. They think he's just a big joke. Abraham and Lot are held up for comparison. And if you had to choose one of these two men to intercede with God on your behalf, who's it going to be? Who are you going to say, look, I, I, can, I can choose one of these men to pray for me. Who are you going to pick? Well, Abraham every time. You don't need to think about that, do you? You wouldn't have lost if you can have Abraham. Abraham is going to be your intercessor. But here's the big shock of this passage. The thing that Abraham was praying for and trying to achieve was God's mercy in, on, on Sodom and the surrounding cities. That's what he was trying to do. Yet despite being so loved and accepted uh, by uh, uh, by the person he is, he is praying to, uh, uh, by, by Jesus, uh, the, the passage closes with evidence of his catastrophic failure as an intercessor. Um, but in the end, Lot, almost by accident, as if an afterthought, is successful in saving one of the cities, Zor. At the end of the passage, Abraham stands on this ridge, looking down over the plain. Have a look at uh, 19 verse 28. Uh, well, 27, 28. Uh, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. 
And he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. It's evidence of his utter failure as a priest on Sodom's behalf. His intercession has failed. So let's look at what we can learn from this passage. We'll start with the obvious things. And then having thought about that, it'll help us to understand the more confusing things. Okay, so the most obvious thing, first of all, God's wrath is real. God's love demands wrath. Some people have said to me that they they don't like the wrathful God of the Old Testament, just the the loving God in the New Testament. And I I don't know if uh, you're, you're thinking that there's some kind of tension uh, in God's character. You know, he, he is a loving God, but he is also, you know, he is also angry at sin. That maybe, maybe you feel you could trust a God of love or fear a God of wrath, but how could they be the same person? But if that's you, I want to suggest that you're not thinking of God as a loving parent. So imagine you have kids and one day you walk into a room and find one child savagely beating another of your children. How would you feel? You just love and affirm everyone. Does that, no, no, you'd be furious, wouldn't you? You'd be really angry. Uh, does that contradict your love for either of them? Of course not. It demonstrates it. It fulfills it. The greater you love your children, then the more burning hot your anger is at that moment. Angry at the way one of your children is being treated because you love them. And angry at what your other child has become because you love them. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the events the rest of the Bible points to when it wants to prove that God's warnings of coming judgment are real. Jesus refers to it. uh, The prophets refer to it. Peter refers to it uh, in verses uh, 20 and 21. He tells us uh, why he's about to do it in the, in chapter 18. Um, he, uh, uh, he says, look, the, the, the destruction, uh, uh, sorry, verses 20 and 21, the outcry. These are the people crying out because of the cruelty and oppression they were experiencing. The sin of Sodom would appear to be obvious. The entire city seems to think that when strangers visit, gang rape is the obvious course of action. It isn't because they are gay. It's not lust that's drawn everyone out, is it? Male rape was used as the ultimate humiliation. So much more powerful than just beating a man up to uh, horribly injure him, but also to strip him of his dignity, to impose on him appalling shame. And, uh, but this was just one part of a wider attitude to outsiders. Ezekiel 16, verses 49 to 50. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were... Uh, And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. So instead of loving God with all their hearts 
uh, and their neighbours themselves as was is reasonable as what all people should do. They had this haughty attitude towards God and towards outsiders. And so they put themselves first and exploited the vulnerable. And I felt very convicted as I was writing this. It's, it's always nice to imagine that sin is something that's done out there by those other people. And if only we could uh, cut them off or cancel them, that everything would be fine. Uh, but uh, actually, it's very close to home, isn't it? The expansion vessel in our central heating uh, sprang a leak on Friday. And uh, rather than buying from a local company, uh, it was just easier to get it from Amazon. Now, I hate the way they treat their workers. I hate the way they abuse uh, their monopoly to crush their competitors and to uh, cheat their suppliers. Uh, but this was just much easier and I wanted to get on with other things. Uh, so I bought from them anyway. And then I came to this verse and it's just, it's humbling, isn't it? Pride, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Or as other versions have it, arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. It's basically us in the West, isn't it? Who has asked you for your help this week and you've just not wanted to be bothered by them? You just felt you have enough of your own problems. You can't be concerned with theirs as well. It would cause problems for you if you tried to help. And besides, it's normal for people like that to have problems. Maybe they brought it on themselves. Or, or it's much worse when you have your problems. Arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. What's your pension fund invested in? Are they companies and products that you're proud to own? There are CEOs all over the world uh, who defend their immoral corporate behaviour because they have to deliver the best possible return to their shareholders, uh, to your pension scheme. You may be one of those shareholders. We can say, oh, that's not me. That's just society. But society's us, isn't it? As they say, uh, as they say, not one snowflake takes responsibility for the avalanche. We all bear responsibility, don't we, for what society does. But we're arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. God hears the outcry from the oppressed and he loves them. And we must love them too. And all too often we don't, we just turn away. He is furious at the way people created in his image are arrogantly abused and furious that people with such potential to be gloriously Christ-like instead use our God-given creativity to debase ourselves with selfish trivialities. We are ashamed when we look back at his, in history and see people who should have known better, people who are glorious, uh, glorious in other ways. People like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, uh, owning slaves on plantations in the States. Well, they should have known better, but they're distracted. What will people say in the future about us? God's wrath can't be pretended away by saying that we believe in a God of love, as if a loving God would turn a deaf ear to the outcry against us. That is the depth of being arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Our loving God is rightly furious, and you and I deserve it. People like us deserve it. God's love demands wrath.
But also we see from this passage that God's love demands wrath and mercy. See, I struggle to understand Abe's haggling because I imagined Abraham desperately trying to persuade Christ to be merciful. And Christ was there going, oh, really? You want me to be even more merciful? Oh, you're seriously pushing your luck, Abraham. You know, I pictured Abraham um, uh, being a pest and Jesus wanting to end the conversation as soon as possible. But think about this. Who initiated the conversation? Well, chapter 18, verse 17. It's the Lord who chose to tell Abraham all about what he was about to do. And he was the one who brought up the subject of righteousness and justice, clearly inviting Abraham to act like the defence counsel in this case. This section is full of legal language. Uh, 18 verse 25, we're talking about the judge of all the earth. Verse 23, Abraham comes near. It's the, the word for a barrister standing before the bench and approaching the bench. The fact that two angels were going is ominous. It reminds us that no one could be put to death under God's law on the strength of only one witness. There's got to be a reason. There's two of them. Abraham clearly knows uh, this fact. He knows that what the result of their investigation is going to be. There's, there's going to be no vindicating uh, Sodom. He knows that the punishment will be death. And Abraham clearly feels nervous. We see this in the way he speaks. You know, oh, don't be angry with me. I'm, I'm just dust and ashes. You know, it's, I know it's, you know, he says, I know it's impudent of me to ask for mercy. But each time Christ was willing, without hesitation, to grant mercy. The conversation only ended when Abraham said, look, this is the last, last time I'm going to ask you. Abraham starts at 50. And he haggles all the way down to 10 righteous people. For the sake of 10 righteous people, God was willing uh, not to destroy the city. God, and as we'll see later on in the passage, God would have been willing if he'd gone all the way down to one. But for now, the lesson for us is to pray. God calls us to intercede for people with him. And, uh, and he tells us that he works through his people's prayers. If he, is, if he was inviting prayer for Sodom, then is there anyone alive that we can't be praying for? Keep praying for your friends and relatives. Keep praying for the nations. Keep praying for people at work. Keep praying for those people who, whose lives you think, oh, they, they could never be saved. Keep praying for them. Because sometimes he surprises us with... Uh, far more than we can ask or imagine. God's love demands wrath, and yet he is merciful. His love delights to have mercy. Thirdly, God's justice means his wrath is never indiscriminate. Look at uh, Abraham's legal argument. Chapter 18, verse 23. Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy uh, the righteous with the wicked. Uh, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do uh, such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. 
far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He's saying, look, I know you are just, therefore you won't accept collateral damage or collective punishments. Now, it may be that you're suffering from, uh, at the moment due to someone else's sin. Well, we hear that God's judgment is real and it's personal. He will clear it up. He will vindicate it. He will, he will hold them accountable. It may be that there's something that you got away with. Uh, and you covered it up, you lied your way out. But God is the final judge. There's nothing secret that will not be uncovered and shouted from the rooftops. We've got to make our peace with him now. We've got to confess, apologise, repent and put it right. It may be that you've been falsely accused of something. Well, God is the final judge and he will clear it up. The judge of all the earth will do what's right. Abraham establishes that God will not sweep away the righteous with the, the unrighteous. And he discovers that God is willing to withhold his judgment for the sake or on the many unrighteous for the sake of the few who are righteous. And he haggles all the way down from 50 to 10. But you've got to wonder why he stopped at 10. Did he really think that 10 was the limit of God's mercy? That he was... Uh, that was as good a deal as he could get. Because if he will not destroy the city for the lack of five, then why not for the lack of nine? And you've got to wonder why he stopped there. God is willing through the righteousness of one person to save many. And we have proof. We have proof in the New Testament. We have proof in this passage. Lot intercedes again. Have a look at uh, uh, 19 verse 18. Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favour in your sight and you have increased your mercy, with, uh, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there and my soul shall live he's got selfish motives hasn't he he's a deeply unattractive character at this point and yet he managed to save zor what abraham had failed to do saving the cities of the plain lot succeeds in by accidents what's the difference well lot went there zor was saved because lot was with them and in that city some people wonder if Abraham realised uh, that God was willing to spare Sodom through him. It's, uh, some of the commentators debate this. Uh, but that he realised that it would mean him going down there. And that's why he stopped. He needn't have feared for his life. The Lord had just promised that he'd be holding his son this time next year. But maybe he was there thinking, look, I know what they do to outsiders. And it's too much to ask that I go down to be with these scumbags. That he has a, a Jonah moment. I could, look, send me anywhere, but not to them. Well, lastly, we learn that we have a better intercessor. Even though this passage highlights Abraham's failure uh, as an intercessor and marks the beginning of a, a brief period of his backsliding. You read on into chapter 20. He goes back to his old ways uh, um, uh, and uh, brings a curse 
on uh, one of the foreign nations uh, uh, through Abimelech. Uh, but it also reveals what's necessary uh, for the families of the world to be blessed. So Abraham is meant to be a blessing to the nations. Instead, he, he fails and, uh, and slides back. But, but what's necessary for God's promise to be fulfilled and God has already made it clear that his promise would be fulfilled through God's righteousness, not through Abraham's. Well, God's unhesitating mercy to sinners who repent. And secondly, his willingness to save the many through the righteousness of one. And that the righteous one would have to sacrificially come to be with us. That's Emmanuel, isn't it? So that's that word we sing it at Christmas time. God with us, the incarnation, God becoming a human being, part of our family. Jesus knew full well what we do to the divine outsider, and yet He came down. He knew what we do to Him: the rejection, the betrayal, the mockery, the spitting, the flogging, the shame that he'd been nailed to a cross, suffocated to death, bearing our sin, uh, held up to ridicule in public. And he came down into our humanity to save you, to make us part of his heavenly family. We uh, read that verse earlier to the children, didn't we? Hebrews 2. Uh, verses 10 and 11 in bringing many sons and daughters to glory it was fitting that God uh, for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered both he who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters just got to bask in that for a moment isn't it he sees you and i he sees planet earth he sees south wales for for what it is there's there's no kind of rose-tinted spectacles he he knows exactly what we're like he loves us and he throws the invitation open he is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters if you'll come and receive him he's done everything necessary to make it possible romans 5 verse 19 says look for as by one man's disobedience uh, many were made sinners so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous do you know jesus as you listen to this today is he your king trust him why on earth would you not come to him because he came down to you let his righteousness cover you let let you be one of the many who is saved through his righteousness he'll never out ignore the outcry against you you have that against you it it, it exists it's real he knows what you've done even the things that you made excuses for and pretended weren't real He knows. It's serious. It matters to him. He loves those people that you wronged. But he loves to have mercy. And he paid for your sin uh, at the cross. And he throws open the invitation. 
Come. He, lo- he would love to show you mercy. Come to him. He stepped down into our family so he could lift us up into his. Come to him and he will not turn you away. Outside of him, there's nothing. It's just the outcry against you uh, and his, his very genuine and justified wrath. But come to him because he loves to show mercy. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this man, Abraham, the model of faith that he is. Lord, we thank you that he's held up and shown warts and all that we can see what following you really means. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy on Abraham, that you restored him, that, uh, that as you were saying this to him, even as he was failing as an intercessor, the promise had been made that the, that, uh, the, the promised seed, the, the, the initial deposit that, of the, the line that would result in the Lord Jesus was about to appear in Sarah's womb. Lord, that uh, this uh, uh, miracle child was going to come, the father of uh, so many and ultimately the miracle child who was the true Emmanuel. Lord, we thank you that Christ stepped down into this world so that he could stand for us, be our representative, be our rescuer and intercessor. We thank you that dressed in his righteousness, we are safe. Heavenly Father, we pray for all who are listening and all who they are praying for as well. Heavenly Father, would there be a rich harvest of people stepping into the truth, uh, stepping into your family, being reconciled with you and being able to call you Father because they are received as brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus himself, for whose glory we pray and in whose name we ask. Amen.